Hey guys, welcome back. I'm Nicole Hager and I am so glad that you are here. Today we're going to be in session four of our judges study and we're going to be looking at the cycle of Jephthah as judge. This was a little bit of a lighter week as far as the workload because the account of Jephthah is only two and a half chapters long. So I hope you enjoyed a little bit of a lighter week because um, Samson comes next and is quite a bit longer. So um, you're probably seeing as you've been doing the homework that we are well into this downward slope of these judges here. Remember at the beginning of Judges, we started with Othniel, who was the ideal judge. Then we had a handful of what most people would consider to be pretty good judges. They were definitely unexpected leaders in the eyes of their culture, but were not told of any major moral or spiritual flaws. But then last week, we kind of saw a shift and a little downward turn because we saw in Gideon that just the same way that there was this downward spiral of the Israelites in the introduction, there's also a downward spiral in the judges themselves throughout the book. Gideon had some major flaws in how he ruled after delivering the Israelites, and his sin had big consequences. We're getting even further along now in that same trajectory, and in the story of Jephthah, a lot of people disagree on how we should look at him as a judge. Some people look at his story and think, oh, well, he was a pretty good judge. Look at what he did. And then other people look at him and say, wow, he was a terrible judge. Look at his heart and what, you know, what kind of came out of his heart. And so when we're trying to decide, was he a good judge or a bad judge, um, Jen Wilkin, when she talks about Jephthah specifically, she kind of points out that when you're trying to decide if he's good or bad, when you know that the trajectory of the book starts with the best judges and ends with uh, kind of the biggest train wreck of a judge, um, it's kind of makes more sense that the placement of Jephthah as second to last that we get a lot of details about, um, that lends itself better to the idea that he was a very flawed judge. And I think that his actions, when we look at them closely, are going to make that clear. So let's get started and hopefully you'll see what I mean. So we're going to start in chapter six, or I mean, sorry, chapter 10, verse six. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. And they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For eighteen years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and Gilead in the land of the Amorites. And the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight, also, to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Okay, let's stop and notice a few things here. Who did it say that the Israelites have now been serving? Because up until now, we've just been told that they were serving or turning to the Baals and the Asheroths. Here, though, it says that not only did they serve the Baals and the Asheroth as before, but it also makes a point to state that they served the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Why is this significant? Well, if you happen to look at a map, you might have noticed that all of these locations listed all border Canaan. The Baals and the Ashtoreth refer to the Canaanite gods, but we see here that they've gone far beyond the influence of only the Canaanites. They're also following the gods of most of the surrounding kingdoms now as well. So we can see that their idolatry is growing as time goes on. Um, all these kingdoms kind of make a big circle around Canaan, so their influence is spreading. And we know that the book of Judges shows us a downward spiral, and this detail of how many of these other false gods of other kingdoms beyond kingdom Canaan that they're now following helps us to see just how bad it's getting. You may have also recognized that the names of these different kingdoms that surround Canaan um, are familiar because we've seen many of them oppress the Israelites at different points so far in the book. Do you remember who Ehud fight, fought? He fought Moab and the sons of Ammon. Who did Shamgar fight? The Philistines. Who did Deborah and Barak fight? The Canaanites. So there seems to be this correlation between the false gods that Israelites turned to and the kingdoms that oppressed them, which is interesting. 
Tim Keller in his book on Judges talks about this very thing, um, and he, so, he says that this shows us that you can't serve an idol without eventually becoming enslaved by that idol, which is something to think about. Okay, let's move on. Verse 10. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the God said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? Also, when the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in, the, in this time of your distress. And the sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to thee. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Okay. So we're seeing a big change now from our original cycle that we've seen on repeat throughout Judges. Because this time, Israel cried out to God to save them, as usual. But God reminds them here of how many times he has already saved them before. And how each time they have turned away from him and followed other gods afterwards. He lists seven people and seven times he has saved them. And seven was a number to the Israelites that signified completeness. So he's basically telling them that he has saved them completely and fully. And then he tells them that, no, he's not going to save them this time. And if they need saving, why don't they ask all these other gods that they've been following and see how that goes? Now, in isolation, when we look at just this response, it seems a bit cruel. But let's look at the progression of God's response throughout the book. First, Israel cries out to him. He raises up Othniel and he saves them. And then they turn to idols. They're oppressed again and they cry out to him again. He raises up Ehud and he saves them. And then they turn to idols. They're oppressed again. They cry out to him. He raises up Deborah and he saves them. Then they turn to idols. They're oppressed again. They cry out to him again. He raises up Shamgar and he saves them. And then they turn to idols. They're oppressed again. He sends a prophet to try to address their hearts that keep turning away from him. And then he raises up Gideon to tear down their altars again, trying to get to the root of their problem, which is their idolatry. And then after all this, he saves them again, even though they didn't repent. And they again turn to idols. So when we take this response in its context, this new response from God seems like the natural progression of a father trying to teach his children. He saved them, and he saved them, and he saved them again. And then he tried to speak to their hearts before saving them. And now he's essentially saying, let me show you the true power these gods that you keep turning to you have. Because surely that would break the power that these idols had over them, right? When you look to something to save you and it can't, then it becomes clear who the one true God really is. God has proven his power to them time and time again. Can these new false gods do the same? Remember, their biggest problem was not their physical oppression. It was the spiritual bondage they were in to all these false gods. And that was what God is trying to free them from by showing them that these false gods are just that, false. They cannot and will not save Israel. So then what happens? In verse 15, their tone changes a little and they say, Do to us whatever seems good to thee, only please deliver us this day. And then they put their idols away, indicating some form of repentance. Notice, they are just now putting the false idols away. So where does that mean that those idols were the first time they cried out to God in verse 10? Yep, they were still in their homes being worshipped. When they turned to God in verse 10, they were basically wanting God to save them while they still actively worshipped those false gods. This kind of looks appalling to us, but how often do we do the exact same thing? Remember, we talked last week about how our false gods are no different from the false gods of the Canaanites and these neighboring kingdoms. Our gods may not come as graven images called Baal, but the idols we follow promise us the exact same things. Human nature is the same as it always has been, and it seeks after the same things it always has. 
Baal promised prosperity, comfort, security, ease of life, and flourishing. Today, we still want prosperity, comfort, security, ease of life, and flourishing. And we have plenty of false idols that promise those things to us. Jobs can easily become idols as they promise us these things. So we start to overwork or we neglect our families. Wealth can become a false idol because it can promise us all these things. And as we start to seek after wealth, we might start to decide our own value based on our clothing, our appearance, or our possessions. Maybe we look for all of these things in our relationships and we jump from one relationship to the next. Or maybe we turn to food or to alcohol or to money or to TV or pornography and a host of other things to find comfort or self-indulgence. Maybe we lie to cover up our flaws and look better than we really are because we're clinging to the idol of self of approval of man. Um, and when some difficult circumstance then comes up in our life, we like to cry out to God to save us, but usually we cry out to him while we're still clinging to all these idols. We're a lot like the rich young ruler in the New Testament who asked Jesus how he could be saved. How could he have eternal life? And Jesus told him that he needed to sell all he had to the poor. And the man left sad because he wanted Jesus, but he also wanted to keep clinging to his idol of wealth, which promised him comfort and security. And that was something that I guess he just didn't seem to trust that God alone could provide. So for us, in order to truly be free, we have to be willing to let go of anything in the world that promises to give us the desires of our heart. And we have to know and believe that only the one true God can make good on that promise. Wealth isn't bad. Jobs aren't bad. Relationships aren't bad. Clothing and food and nice things aren't bad. It's when we look to those things to fill us and to bring us lasting comfort or security or power or approval, things that we should only be looking to God for, that is when those things become an idol that we are actively worshiping. So here in Judges, when God tells the Israelites that he's not going to save them, he's doing something very loving by showing them that their false gods have no power and cannot save them. God does the same thing for us. I'm going to read a quote by Tim Keller because he said it really, really well. He says about this in Judges, he said, um, how it applies to us. He says, so God says to the person who worships money, if you want to live for money instead of for me, then money will rule your life. It will control your heart and emotions. If you want to live for popularity instead of for me, then popular acclaim will rule and control you. If you want another God besides me, go ahead. Let's see how merciful it is to you, how effective it is in saving and guiding and enlightening you. So again, money and popularity aren't bad, but when we start to look to them to do for us what only God can do, that's what puts us in bondage to them and makes them an idol. Now, I'm spending a lot of time on this because I really think that this is one of the biggest application points we need to get from today's account. We need to have our eyes open to the fact that the idols we turn to cannot save us. Anything they offer is temporary and can be taken away. And if we're going to call ourselves Christians and turn to the one true God who can actually offer what these idols can't, we have to ask God to show us our idols and help us let go of them. Okay, so let's move on. We see then that God could bear Israel's misery no longer. This shows us his compassion. Some of your translations might use the word impatient, like he's impatient with their misery. But the more accurate, accurate translation is that he could bear their misery no longer. We see that he's a father who loves his children, and even when they've rejected him so many times, he can't bear to see them suffer. So we're about to see that he raises up a deliverer for them, and we're going to get a little bit back on, track in our, bit back on track in our cycle, just for a bit anyway. So let's go ahead and read chapter 10, verse 17. Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. 
And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows gathered gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. Okay, so we see here that the sons of Ammon, this was the people who were oppressing the Israelites this time, they camped in Gilead. And the leaders of Gilead are now looking for someone to lead them in battle against the sons of Ammon. So like they've got the enemy camping in there, they need somebody to lead them to kind of protect them and fight in battle with them. So they turn to Jephthah. We see that Jephthah was the son of Gilead, but not by Gilead's wife. He was the son of a harlot. So he was not seen as equal to his brothers. So far, there's starting to be a little bit of a parallel between him and Abimelech, who was also an outsider among his brothers because he was the son of a concubine. And while Abimelech severed ties with his brothers by killing them, Jephthah's brothers kind of severed ties here with Jephthah by driving him out of the area and telling them that he's going to have no inheritance. And then also kind of like Abimelech, who does he surround himself with? It says worthless fellows. We kind of see that same phrase in both accounts. So we're introduced to Jephthah in a way that would make us in a a little bit picture Abimelech. And we saw last week that Abimelech was just terrible in every way. Jephthah, though, he doesn't have the same flaws as Abimelech. He's got some good points, too, and his flaws are going to come out in a lot of different ways than Abimelech's did. So let's read on verse 4. And it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And it happened when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Do do you not hate me? Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now turned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So notice here we have a new parallel starting. We saw in his introduction kind of a parallel between him and Abimelech. But here we see another one. Let's see if you can figure out what it is. So first, they rejected Jephthah. Then they realized that they needed him, so they came to him for help. And then Jephthah responds, why are you coming to me? Didn't you just reject me? And they say again, no, we need you to help us. And he, knowing their disloyalty, asks them, hey, if I help you, are you going to then make me your leader? And they assure him that yes, if he helps them, he will be their leader. What relationship and dialogue does this parallel? It's Israel and God. This is exactly the conversation they just had with God, where they asked for help. God told them and said, why are you asking me? Didn't you just reject me? And then they say yes to God, but they really need him this time. And then um, they promise to follow him if he saves them. And so it really is such a striking parallel between their conversation that they just had with God. One commentator, Dale Davis, he um, kind of describes the way that they talk to Jephthah. He calls it an acted parable of the way Israel approaches Yahweh. Okay, let's keep going. Um, Verse 12. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan, therefore return them peaceably now. 
But Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon, and they said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea, he came to Kadesh, and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab, and came to the east side of the land of Moab. And they camped beyond the Arnon, but they did not, um, but they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people and camped in Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all of his people into the land of Israel, into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of, the, of that country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok, and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. Okay, we're going to stop here because this is a lot of places and a lot of details. This is kind of one of those sections that's easy to just kind of get glazed over and skip over and just hope that it wasn't important. So we're going to stop here and make sure that we really understand what's happening. So the first thing that Jephthah does, um, he doesn't just automatically go and fight, does he? He kind of does something first. He goes and he sends messengers to the enemy to try to work things out to them with, with them with words. Um, Jephthah has a bit of a reputation with most commentators for being a bit of a smooth talker. He likes to use words to kind of try to get what he wants. It's one of the things that he seems to be known for. So he sends messengers asking the king of the sons of Ammon. He says, why do you want to fight us? And the king sends word back that it's because Israel had taken his land long ago and he wants his land back. So he's saying, hey, you guys took our land. I want it back. So then what we see here is that Jephthah goes into a pretty lengthy response of what actually happened. He basically says, no, that's not what happened. Let me tell you what actually happened. Israel didn't take your land. We tried to pass through Edom and we tried to pass through Moab, but they wouldn't let us. So we went around both of them. Then Israel asked the king of the Amorites if they could pass through their land. Okay, notice here, he said that they asked the king of the Amorites, not the Ammonites who are challenging Jephthah right now. So Jephthah is pointing out that it was the Amorites' land that Israel asked to pass through. And when they asked, not only did the Amorites say no, but the Amorites then attacked Israel. And then Israel won. And that's how they came to possess the land fair and square. They didn't come and attack the Amorites for their land and take it from them. They came, asked to pass through it. The Ammonites said, Amorites said no. Um, and then they attacked Israel. And then Israel won. And that is a fair way in that culture to have won the land. Okay, so Jephthah's pointing out it wasn't the Ammonites' land to begin with, the people who are trying to attack them. It was the Amorites. He's also pointing out that they didn't attack them for the land. The Amorites attacked first and they lost. But then this retelling of this facts is not where he stops. Because remember, he's really good with his words. He's a smooth talker. So he's going to be really, really thorough here. And he's going to keep going and give some more arguments as to why the sons of Ammon have no reason to attack them. So let's pick back up in verse 23. He says, then, in the same um, response to the king, he says, since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives to you to possess? So whatever the Lord, our God, has driven out before us, we will possess it. And now are you any better than Balak, Balak the son of Zippor, the king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel, or did he ever fight against them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aurora and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? 
I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge today, judge between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent them. Okay, so next here we saw that after this that lengthy, you know, retelling of the actual historical account, Jephthah, Jephthah kind of moves on to give kind of a theological reason that they would be wrong to attack. He basically says, hey, our God gave us our land, and your God gave you yours. And this argument would have been in line with the Amorites' beliefs about how the gods worked. So he's kind of challenging them to stick to their own beliefs and be content with the land that their God gave them. And then he kind of moves on past that. after, Like, finally, it was like the facts and then the theology wasn't enough for him. So then he looks to precedence as another argument. He kind of says... Hey, look at the last 300 years. Nobody has challenged us on this for 300 years. Why should you just all of a sudden challenge us now? So between all these three things, he gave an incredibly thorough argument as to why the sons of Ammon had no claim on the land and should not attack. But what did the king of the sons of Ammon do? He just disregarded the message. So as well as Jephthah pleaded his case, as good as he was with his words, it didn't matter and an attack was inevitable. So now Jephthah is to prepare for battle, and we're going to see how far we have come from that first clean ideal judge back at the beginning of the book. So let's jump in, verse 29. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Okay, we're going to stop right there because this vow is the most troubling thing about Jephthah. And things like this vow are why a lot of people look at the Old Testament and completely reject it, and they avoid it altogether. But before we get to the vow, I, do, I don't want to skip over this. I want you to notice that in verse 29, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. So we kind of saw that it looked like the people kind of chose Jephthah and he kind of became the, the ruler or whatever. It doesn't necessarily say the Lord chose him um, at the beginning, but we see here that the Spirit came on him now. That means that he, the Spirit was not upon him when he was kind of sending those messages back to the king, um, but the Spirit of the Lord came on him now. Um, so he was chosen by, by God because God placed his Spirit upon him. Um, so I just don't want to skip over that, that that part of the cycle is present. Um, we saw that the Lord raised him up, and we saw that God could bear their misery no longer. He sent his spirit upon Jephthah, um, and then he, Jephthah then, in response, he makes this vow. He says that if God will grant him victory in battle, that he's going to give whoever comes out of his door to greet him afterwards as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, when you give somebody a burnt, something as a burnt offering, that means that you lay it down, you set it to fire, and it you know, normally they would set like an animal or some food as a burnt offering. That was a common thing for Israelites to do. It was not a common practice to set a person as a burnt offering. So we're going to talk about this for a second. First of all, a lot of scholars debate if this means that he is going to literally kill as a burnt offering whoever came out of his house, or if it means that he's just going to dedicate that person to the Lord's service. Um, people kind of disagree with this all over the map. Some people might even say, well, he probably thought an animal was going to come out of his house. But when you look at the original language, it lends itself a lot more to a person. Um, and then the commentators that I read, and I agree with all of them because of everything that's going to come afterwards, they believe that he was literally saying that he is going to kill whatever person comes out as a burnt offering. It just makes much more sense with um, the text and with, with why certain things happen later on. We're going to see later on that people would go and honor and remember um, the person who was killed every year. And so you wouldn't necessarily have this year, yearly four-day, like, 
memory celebration, not a commemoration for somebody who was just given to a temple to serve the Lord. Like it just doesn't make sense. And so there are a lot of different reasons. We'll kind of point out some of them as we go, why we think, why most people think um, he was he was really intending to kill a person as a burnt offering. And it also says the word burnt offering, um, which indicates an actual burnt offering, not like a symbolic giving to the temple. So um, second of all, I want to really point out that this is one of those times that we need to remember that this is descriptive and not prescriptive. Because it's easy to read this and think, what in the world? I cannot believe that God would want his people to sacrifice other human beings as burnt offerings. How can anyone believe in a God who would be pleased by that? But look at the text. Does it at all indicate that God is pleased? No. What is God's response when he says, hey, I'm, gonna make, I'm making this vow to you? Does God say anything back? No, he says nothing back. God is silent. He is silent after Jephthah makes that vow. Did God ever ask him to make that vow? No. Is there anywhere at all in all of scripture where God asks someone to sacrifice another human being and actually wants them to do it? No. Nowhere in all of scripture did God indicate that this is something that he wants us to do, that this is something that is pleasing to him. I had all of you guys in your homework look at a passage in Deuteronomy. And in that passage, it specifically states that human sacrifice is, abom- is abominable and it is a practice that the Lord hates. So remember, he wanted the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites because he didn't want them to adopt these types of practices. The only place in scripture where God asks someone to make a human sacrifice is when he tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And then we know that in that situation at the last minute, God tells him, hey, don't do it. I've got a ram for you instead. I just wanted to... This was more about your heart and for me to see your heart. So I hope that you can kind of see in that story with Abraham that that was such a foreshadowing of Jesus, of God offering a a different sacrifice. Like we know that we are not to make human sacrifices because all of this, the burnt offerings of different food and animals all point to the offering of Jesus that's going to come later. God does not need us to be killing each other. He's clear about that. Um... I've even heard some scholars say that this event with Abraham could have even been God's way of showing his people that he's not honored by these common religious practices of other people groups who all, it was, I mean, even at the time of Abraham, it was, there was other people groups who were doing human sacrifice to their gods. And so in a time when human sacrifice or child sacrifice was common in the nations all around them, God showed Abraham in this story with him and Isaac who Abraham is the father of all the Israelites, God is showing him that he wanted their hearts not for them to be taking their children or each other's lives. And so we see that this is not something that honors God for him to make this vow. And the author assumes that this vow is so horrific that the reader is going to know this. Um, a lot of times we read things in the Old Testament and we're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that that's something that God wanted to happen or that God likes. Um, but we're, we're reading it um, without recognizing what the author is, is kind of taking for granted that we would know. So I've heard Jen Wilkin kind of use this example a lot of different times as she's talking about different things in the Old Testament. Um, and she says that like today, if we're watching the news and the person on the news is telling us about a murder or a rape or some other horrific thing, we don't need the news reporter to then say, and that was bad. Like we just automatically know that this is a terrible thing. We don't need it told us. The author here is assuming the reader would know that this vow was bad. It was horrific. He doesn't feel the need to tell us and God was not honored by this because it seems obvious. So we don't need to let this vow being a stump be a stumbling block to our view of God. Be assured that this vow was not something that was pleasing to God and it's not a vow that God wanted um, Jephthah to make. So a few more things about this vow before we move on. 
We sort of touched on this a little bit already, but who do we know commonly practiced child sacrifice? The Canaanites. Who did God not want his people to be like? The Canaanites. Who is Jephthah acting like here? A Canaanite. We are seeing the consequences of the generations before failing to wipe out the Canaanites from the land. Think about why the Canaanites did the things that they did. Why did they practice child sacrifice? Why did they have temple prostitutes and do all these other things? Because it was their way of controlling their gods. If they wanted to ensure that their gods would do what they wanted, they could do these things to make it happen. They followed false gods who they believed that they could control. They didn't want a sovereign God. They wanted puppets. What about our God? Does he work this way? Can we control our God by doing certain things? No, we serve a God who is sovereign. He controls all and he holds all things in his hands. We can find freedom and joy in him when we realize that we can trust his control and his plan and let go of our false illusions of control over the world. But what was Jephthah trying to do here? Do we see a picture of a man who was wholly following where the Lord led and who was trusting that God was going to do what he said he was going to do? No. He wasn't trusting that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. He still felt the need to control God, to ensure the outcome he wanted. What we see is a man trying to control God like a puppet, and he was using the appalling practices of other cultures of using human sacrifice that bring no honor or glory to the one true God. Okay, verse 32. Let's see what happens next. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them with a very great slaughter from Aror to the entrance of Menes, twenty cities, and as far as Abel-Karamim. Abel so the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came about when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I might go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, Go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. And it came about at the end of two months that she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made. And she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel, that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four, day, four days in the year. Okay, so we see that God did give Jephthah victory. And you might have read that and thought that that victory was in response to the vow. Was it though? Because we already established many reasons that the vow is not pleasing to God. So why does God then grant him victory? Because back in chapter 10, we are told that he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Remember, it didn't say that he was going to save them because of their repentance. It was because of the compassion that he had on Israel. God had already decided to deliver his people before Jephthah made that vow. He gave him his spirit before he made the vow. He had already like kind of made his mind up that he was going to save the people through Jephthah before he made the vow. And because he's a compassionate God, he didn't allow Jephthah's pretty big sin here to stop him from saving all of Israel. I also want you to notice that we're only given two verses about the actual battle with very little details. It seems so far throughout the book that we're given a lot of details due to, uh, to, for two different reasons. Either if there's something amazing in how God showed up, 
or when there's something appalling in how the Israelites are acting. So where is the detail in the account of Jephthah? The detail is in the actions of Jephthah. So while yes, God gives victory, what the author wants us to see here is that God did this victory even in the midst of great sin on the part of the judge who was leading them. So after the victory, we see that his daughter is the first to come out of his house and he acts so surprised, but should he have been? It was actually kind of a common custom of the time for women to greet men after great victories by coming out dancing with tambourines. We've seen at other places in scripture. And it tells us here that Jephthah had no other children. Um, think about like if somebody goes away for a long time and they come home, who do you expect to run out of your door because they're so happy to see you? You're not expecting your servants to come out to see you because they're so happy and they missed you so much. You're expecting your loved ones, your family, they're going to see you from far away and they're going to run out to greet you. Um, a lot of people say, well, he probably expected a servant to come out. Um, but you have to have known that that would have been a possibility. That is probably more likely for somebody that was one of your loved ones to have come out. And then what does he do when his daughter comes out? Well, he kind of starts blaming her. Look at his wordings. He tells his daughter, you have brought me low and you are among those who trouble me. But had she done anything wrong? Nope. He had though, and his first instinct here is to shift blame. Has anybody else ever done that? Shifted blame? I mean, I'm sure none of us have offered to sacrifice our only child and then blamed that on our child, but I'm guessing we have all done our fair share of blame shifting. So don't think that you are nothing like Jephthah here either. Um, it just kind of plays out in a little bit more innocent of ways for us, I think. So then we see his sweet daughter, who's not even angry. Well, we don't see her anger anyway, but she accepts her fate and she asks for two months to go and weep for her virginity. So let's go back to the argument that some make that he wasn't going to kill her. He was just um, saying that he was going to give her to the Lord's service. But if that were the case, a lot of commentators point out that she wouldn't have, she would have had her whole life to mourn her virginity while she was serving in the temple or wherever she was serving. So why ask for these two months? It makes much more sense if she knew she was going to be killed and she wanted to mourn the life that she wouldn't get to have. It's also been pointed out by many that because of this, this two-month period, Jephthah had two whole months to repent of the ungodly vow he made. And he still went through with it, though. Um, at the end of two months, he had all this time that he could have been wrestling with God and saying, and repenting and saying, I know this was not something that was honoring to you. But he never repents, and he follows through with a vow even after two months um, of wrestling with it. And then we see who is remembered. Who is honored each year after this? Not Jephthah. His daughter is commemorated each year for four whole days. Jephthah is not commemorated. Why is that? What do we like to commemorate? We commemorate great victories and great tragedies. Jephthah had a great victory, but that's not what was commemorated. It wasn't commemorated because it was too overshadowed by the great tragedy of his terrible vow in sacrificing his daughter. So then we move on to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, do we see a time of peace or rest in the land? No, we do not. The times of peace and rest are over in the book of Judges. What we see instead is that Israel again starts to fight with themselves. So let's read chapter 12, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon. When I called you, you did not deliver me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? 
Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim, because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me cross over. The men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, Say now Shibboleth. But he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. So once again, Ephraim is mad again that there was this victory and they didn't get to be a part of the glory. We just saw this last week with Gideon. But this time though, Jephthah kind of says, hey, I did ask you for help and you said no and I had to do it myself. And now that there's this great victory, they're kind of upset because they missed out on the glory. So they come to Jephthah, they're all upset kind of similar to how they did with Gideon. What did Gideon do last week when Ephraim did this to him? Well, he was kind of a little bit more fearful. He wasn't quite as bold. And so he pacified their egos. He kind of like told them how great they are to calm them down and try to avoid a fight. But that's not what Jephthah does here. What does Jephthah do? Well, he gathers all the men of Gilead and he goes to war with the men of Ephraim. So now we see that Israel is killing Israel and they're doing it with no mercy. They hunted out the men of Ephraim by testing everybody they saw by their accent. Anybody who pronounced a certain word away that only an Ephraim, a person from Ephraim would have pronounced it, they killed. And in the end, they killed 42,000 men of Ephraim. This is a great tragedy within Israel and it did not require an outside oppressor. This is a very, very big digression. We saw kind of with Abimelech a lot of Israelites killing Israelites, but remember, Abimelech was not a judge raised by the Lord. He was just a man who kind of claimed power for himself. That was just kind of some of the um, effects of um, Gideon's kind of rule. But here we see that this is an actual judge leading this, that a judge that the Lord raised up has turned so far that he has led Israelites to kill 42,000 other Israelites. So this is a very big deal. So... Let's go ahead and see what happens next. Verse 7. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in one of the cities of the Gilead. Now Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel after him. And he had 30 sons and 30 daughters whom he gave in marriage outside the family. And he brought in 30 daughters from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. Now Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel after him. And he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried in Ajalon, the land of Nebulon. Now Abdon the son of Hillel the Parathonite judged Israel after him, and he had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon the son of Hillel the Parathonite died and was buried at Parathon, Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Malachites. So we see the death of Jephthah, and again, there's no period of peace or rest in the land mentioned. Then we briefly hear of these three judges. We hear of Ibsan, Elon, and Abdon. And we're not given many details about these three judges. The only details that we're given is that two of them had many other children and grandchildren, which is a, um, a sign that they probably had many wives. And what did we kind of learn about last week with Gideon? We learned that that's kind of a, a common thing for people aspiring to kingship. So we're seeing kind of some remnants of what started with Gideon still. And then we learned that Abdon also had 70 donkeys, which were what wealthy people rode on. So these judges aren't remembered for victories won or for saving the Israelites. They're remembered briefly for their wealth and kingly aspirations during a time in which God was supposed to be king. We also saw that, saw that one of them, it makes great care to point out that brought in outside people for all of his children to marry. So we see even more with the leaders having this uh, mingling with the Canaanite culture. So... 
What do we take from this week's account? What are our main takeaways here? Well, first off, I think we have to ask ourselves if God is in control of our lives or if we're trying to control God in some way, the way that Jephthah did. Sure, we're probably not vowing to kill our own children if God will do what we ask the way Jephthah did, but I guarantee you that our hearts oftentimes long to have that same power or control over God. We want him to serve our will, not the other way around. We think he should bless us materially because we're good people, or that we should never suffer because we've earned this happy, carefree life because of our faithful church attendance or because of our time in the word. We become angry with God when we face things that are difficult. What's really happening is that we're angry with God because he will not be controlled by us. We need to get to a place where we experience the freedom and joy of trusting that God has a plan. He is in control and he wants what's best for us, even when the best feels painful at times. Second, we need to recognize that just as Jephthah had some bad views of how God operated because of the influence of the Canaanite culture around him, we too probably have some incorrect views of God because of the culture around us. How much of your view of God is a result of time spent studying his word and reading about who he actually says he is? And how much of your view of God is shaped by the countless half-truths the culture around us teaches? And then finally, we need to recognize that in good circumstances or in bad ones, like the Israelites, we are our own worst enemy. We have seen this every week, including this week. Our hearts constantly seek after the idols of the world. Let's be honest with ourselves about what our hearts long for more than God and then repent. Know that only God can deliver all the good things that we are looking for in all these idols. God wanted the Israelites' hearts and he wants your heart too. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the book of Judges and just everything that we can gain from it. Lord, I pray that we would be changed as we read this book. Help us to see ourselves in the Israelites and help us to see how much our hearts like to long for the things that you can only give us, but we search for those in other things and these other idols. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to what those idols are. And God, help us to find the freedom and joy that comes from trusting in you and your plan and your sovereignty. Help us to stop trying to control you or to stop trying to be the ones who um, want to be able to decide our own future, Lord, but help us to trust you and your sovereignty and your control and help us to want your future for us, Lord. God, we love you so much. And again, we just pray that your spirit would be with us as we study and read these next couple of weeks and that you would um, just truly, truly change us as we spend time in the book of Judges, Lord. We love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.